Democrats panic as the polls shift dramatically in favor of Republicans. Joe Biden prepares his re-election bid as he continues to fall apart in public. And Bibi is back. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. This show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. It's time to stand up against big tech. Protect your data at expressvpn.com slash Ben. We'll get to all the news in just one moment. First, there's a lot going on right now. I'm a co-founder of one of the largest conservative news and media companies in the world. We are heading into election week. There's a lot going on. Not sleeping as much as I should, but that means that when my head touches down on my pillow, I need to be asleep immediately. And this means I need the best mattress on planet Earth. I've had my Helix mattress for years now. I absolutely love it. I sleep like a baby, even in the midst of what is arguably my busiest season. As you can see, I'm on the road right now, which means I did not have my Helix sleep mattress. I will let you predict the result. Helix has several different mattress models to choose from. Soft, medium, and firm mattresses. Mattresses great for cooling you down. Mattresses great for spinal alignment to prevent morning aches and pains, even a Helix Plus mattress for plus size sleepers. If you're nervous about buying a mattress online, you don't have to be because Helix has a sleep quiz that matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress because why would you buy a mattress made for somebody else? I took that Helix quiz. I was matched with a firm but breathable model that has made my sleep dreamlike every single night. Go to helixsleep.com slash Ben. Take that two-minute sleep quiz. Find the perfect mattress for your body and sleep type. Your mattress will come right to your door for free. Plus, Helix has a 10-year warranty. You get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. Helix has over 12,000 five-star reviews. Their financing options, flexible payment plans make it so a great night's sleep is never far away. For a limited time, Helix is offering up to 350 bucks off all mattress orders, plus two free pillows for our listeners. That is their best offer yet. It's not going to last long. Head on over to helixsleep.com slash Ben. With Helix, better sleep starts right now. Also, I love spending the holidays with my family. You know what makes our time together that much more enjoyable? Delicious meat. And the best meat on planet Earth comes from Good Ranchers. I know this because they actually made me a kosher steak. And let me just tell you, this steak, which they put on a kosher barbecue for me, and they grilled it for me, it was a spectacularly good steak. As a special gift to my listeners this holiday season, Good Ranchers is giving away two Black Angus New York strip steaks free with your order. These are two 12-ounce steakhouse quality cuts, a $70 value for free. You don't want to miss this offer. Let me tell you why. Black Angus tastes better. It is more tender than any other beef. Black Angus meat is marbled in such a way the fat is distributed thinly and evenly. This marbling gives it a consistent flavor that you just aren't going to get with other meats. Plus, the Black Angus from Good Ranchers is hand-cut and trimmed by expert butchers, so you know every single piece is going to be exquisite. While grocery store meat prices are on the rise, Good Ranchers is dedicated to helping you save as much as possible. If you subscribe to Good Ranchers today, you can lock in your price, avoid those insanely high prices at the grocery store, and get some free meat while you're at it. Go to GoodRanchers.com slash Ben and use code Ben at checkout for this special offer. That's GoodRanchers.com slash Ben. For two Black Angus New York strip steaks free with your order, Good Ranchers, American meat delivered. So, Cook Political Report has now shifted 10 more blue districts in the GOP's direction. This includes a bunch of districts that are really, really blue, actually. And it's important to know that all of the districts that were shifted into sort of lean D or toss-up in the last election cycle in 2020 actually went in the Republican direction. So it is very likely that a lot of these seats are about to shift in the Republican direction. A bunch of money is being spent by Democrats in what should be non-competitive districts. There are a bunch of Democrats who right now are, are up for re-election and are considered sort of iconic in terms of the Democratic Party, who are now going to face down the possibility of losing their seats. Those Cook Political House ratings are very, very ugly for the Democrats. And of course, Cook Political is just following the trend lines because if you look at 538, you remember I said a couple of weeks ago, 538 had about a 70-30 shot. The Democrats were about to take the Senate. And now 
that is down to a 51% shot that Republicans are going to take the Senate. I had said a couple of weeks ago that was going to narrow dramatically, and it would not shock me if by election time, Republicans actually had the upper hand in the Senate polling. Some of the candidates who are apparently actually now toss-ups, according to Cook Political, these are names that you recognize. That includes, by the way, Katie Porter. You remember Katie Porter? She's the one who always likes to show up with whiteboards and charts in the in the House. And everybody online is like, she'll run for president one day. It turns out she might actually lose her seat in California. The 10 districts that were moved by Cook Political were three in California, two in Illinois, one in New Jersey, three in New York, and one in Oregon. Those are bad news for the Democratic Party. These are solid blue states. And a bunch of these seats have now been moved from solidly D to lean D, from likely D to lean D, or from lean D to toss-up. Three of those seats moved to toss-up. One of those seats, the Oregon 5th District, moved from a toss-up to a lean Republican seat. Okay, all the momentum is now moving in one direction. Joe Rogan said that the red wave is going to look like the elevator doors opening and the blood pouring out of the elevator in The Shining. That is correct, except it's not going to be an elevator. It's going to look more like deep impact, the tsunami at the end, but colored red. This is going to be a huge year for Republicans by all available data. And Democrats are freaking out. And the reason they're freaking out is because they know what is coming. And so the precriminations have begun, as they say, the precriminations, because they're recriminations, but prospectively. The big precrimination is that the Democrats don't have a cohesive message. Well, the reason they don't have a cohesive message is because they've done a terrible job. And you can see this when you go through the Democratic candidates. The assumption by Democrats in this election cycle is that Republicans had run so many bad candidates that the referendum was effectively going to be on the Republican candidates. The referendum was not going to be on Raphael Warnock in Georgia. It was going to be on Herschel Walker. The referendum was going to be on Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania. It was not going to be on John Fetterman. The referendum was not going to be on Kathy Hochul in New York. It was going to be on Lee Zeldin, the Republican. That was assumption number one. Assumption number two was, even if that doesn't work, we can make this election a referendum on Donald Trump and January 6th. People will ignore the inflation. People will ignore the crime. People will ignore the illegal immigration. And they'll focus in on threats to democracy. Donald Trump is a big, bad, orange, bad, evil, bad, orange man. And because he's bad and orange, that means that people will vote against this guy over here in a random district in Oregon. Now, that's a bank shot. Their, their third kind of line was they'll vote on abortion. Now, this was a triple bank shot. Okay, that was Jordan off the backboard, off the blimp, off the airplane, off the bird, off the wall, swish, nothing but net. Like the old McDonald's commercial. Okay, that, that's what it had to be. Because here's the thing about running on abortion. It actually is a triple bank shot. One, it suggests that there are a bunch of people who might need an abortion or are worried about getting an abortion. The truth is that on a year-by-year -year basis, that's a fairly low number compared to the population of the United States. In the United States, every abortion, I'm a pro-life person, is a tragedy. There are less than a million abortions a year in the United States. There are about 130 million people who are going to vote in this upcoming election cycle minimum. Okay, so that number is not going to be dispositive in deciding these districts, even the people who had abortion. Two, you have to assume that everybody who wants an abortion is deeply worried about their own state's policy, which again, now you got to cut that number significantly because a lot of people having abortions are in New York, Illinois, Massachusetts, California. The abortion law in those states is not changing. And three, you then have to make the weird assumption that if you elect a federal candidate for federal office, this will change abortion policy in your state. And that's not how any of this works because abortion was just kicked back to the states by the Supreme Court of the United States. So running on abortion was likely to peter out very early. And then as my friend John Podhoritz over at Commentary Magazine has pointed out, there's another factor too, which is that about halfway through this election cycle, there's an actual referendum on preserving abortion in the state of Kansas. And it went the way the pro-choicers wanted, which seemed to sort of alleviate some of their large-scale worries that the pro-lifers were about to run roughshod over everything in every single state. 
So Democrats have no nothing to run on. They, they have no plan to run. And so you've gotten is an incredibly fragmentary race from the Democrats. Now, normally, if you had a successful president, what you could do is grab his coattails and hope to ride that to victory. You could theoretically, it doesn't always work, but you could theoretically hope to clutch that president, clutch him close, and hope that his popularity would carry you to some level of victory. The only trends that have ever been bucked in terms of midterm elections where victory was won by the in-party, the, 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 the in-power party, are elections like 2002, where the president was at that time extremely popular, George W. Bush in the aftermath of 9-11. And at that time, Republicans were able to sort of clutch onto George W. Bush and carry that on to victory. But typically, how the president does is a pretty good indicator of how the party is going to do, because the midterm election is a referendum on the party in power, virtually always. It's even worse when you can't clutch to that president. When the president himself seems like he is on the verge of physically falling down, when he's run bad policy through the ringer and come up with whatever his agenda is, and it's failed on nearly every front. And so what you end up with is basically a bunch of Lilliputians who are running around screaming about random topics, and nobody knows why they're running or what they're running for or why they should be in power. So we're going to go through some of the Democratic candidates who are in real trouble. And you will see, there's no cohesive message. They don't know what to talk about. They're confused. Their campaigns make no sense. And this is why they're about to get their butts handed to them in about a week here. So let's start with Kathy Hochul over in New York. My sleeper pick for the Democrat who definitely should win, who is not going to win. So Kathy Hochul is the governor of New York. There's no way a Republican should be able to be elected governor of New York. The last Republican who is governor of New York was George Pataki. That was a long time ago when George Pataki was governor of New York. Lee Zeldin, who is a fairly mainstream conservative Republican, is running against Kathy Hochul in New York. And by the polling, he has now pulled ahead of Kathy Hochul in New York, which is amazing, except for the fact that Kathy Hochul has no built-in base. Remember, she inherited the job from Andrew Cuomo, who came to kill all the old people and grab ass, and he ran out of old people. And so Kathy Hochul took over. Kathy Hochul has done a Really poor job as governor of New York. She has no built-in loyalty from any New Yorker because nobody voted for her for governor in the first place. It's not as though everybody went and pulled the lever for Kathy Hochul. Now they feel invested in her future victory. Nobody actually voted for her. She was lieutenant governor. And no one cares about the lieutenant governor's race in any state. Quick, name the lieutenant governor of your state. A lot of people can't. You know the governor. Lots of people don't know who the lieutenant governor is. Okay, in any case, Kathy Hochul is now the governor. And she is confused. She doesn't know what to say. And so she is now relying on some of the weakest rhetoric I have ever seen. Not only in debate did she complain that Lee Zeldin kept, uh, kept talking about crime. Why are you talking about crime, Lee? Why are you so interested in throwing people in jail? Maybe it's because in your state people are getting tossed in front of subway trains. Maybe it would be that. But Kathy Hochul is now saying, well, the, the reason I'm losing is because Republicans are scaring people. See, here's the thing about the argument that the opposing party is capable of scaring people. This implies either that people are complete dullards or that perhaps people have reason to be scared. If I told you today that you need to be scared of a dinosaur invasion, you would not be scared no matter how many times I repeated it because that's not a thing that's going to happen. If, however, I am running for governor of New York and I'm warning you that there is going to be a serious crime upsurge if Democrats maintain power because there has been in the past and you're scared, that's probably because you're already scared of crime and I'm just mentioning it. Here's Kathy Hochul trying to ignore the obvious. Once people realize what we've done, and all he's done is talk about how we can talk about crime. He has no plan. The New York Times just called him out and says he has no plan. And so we're just getting the attention of the voters now. They'll understand Like you can say all you want, but we actually have a strategy. It's not sound bites. It's sound policy. And that's the difference between us. And that'll be the key to our success in the next week. Democrats focus on facts, but we also don't ignore the fact that there's real human emotion here. People are scared. They're hurting, and a lot of it has to do with this unsatiable 
effort by the Republicans to scare people when I'm out there actually doing something to literally keep them safer. Um, you're not doing anything to keep them safer. You've been ripping on the police. You've done nothing to crack down on crime. Everybody knows this. That's super weak tea there from Kathy Hochul. So for the first time since 2006, there's a decent shot that a Republican could be governor of New York. And again, for the exact same reasons, by the way, that Republicans took over New York in the first place. The reason Rudy Giuliani became the mayor of New York, the reason George Pataki became governor of New York is because New York was a criminal ridden hellhole until the early 90s. And Republicans were able to take over because of that. By the way, the same exact thing is happening in Los Angeles. You'll recall Los Angeles, which is a heavily Democrat-governed city. Richard Reardon became mayor of Los Angeles in the 90s because of the crime problem in L.A. I've been saying this for so many years, I can't even tell you. I remember going all the way back to about 2010, perhaps, 2012. Remember, there was a race between Jerry Brown and Neil Kashkari, and Kashkari was running against Jerry Brown for governor of California. And I said to Neil, why aren't you running on crime? He's like, I'm going to run on education. I'm like, what are you... Why? Why? If you're a Republican in a deep blue state, you have to run on crime because crime is the issue that matters most to human beings who feel like they might be robbed at any moment. And those are the ones who are going to be voting for you. They're the ones who are going to be passionate. In any case, Zeldin is doing the right thing. How desperate is Kathy Hochul at this point? Here's how desperate Kathy Hochul is. She is about to do a rally with, get ready for it. This is a, a bevy of superstars. You ready? Kamala Harris, Hillary Clinton, Tish James. Whew. I mean, that rally alone should get Lee Zeldin elected. Kamala Harris, Hillary Clinton, and Tish James. If you can think of a less charm, charmful trio than, than that, I will give you actual cash money. That is, that is amazing. We can only hope and pray that she also brings in Randy Weingarten to, to complete the Beatles of failure. Just solid stuff there from Kathy Hochul. So Hochul is in serious trouble. So much trouble, by the way, that now Democrats are relying on a narrative that Republicans are racist for mentioning crime. So New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, who almost got his butt kicked out of office just a couple of years ago, despite the fact that he was running against a person whose name nobody knows. He was like, well, you know, when the GOP talks about crime, what they're really talking about is black people. Except for not. Except what they're actually talking about is crime. So here is Murphy trying to pull Hochul's chestnuts out of the fire by suggesting that it's all about race. Listen, the, the other guys play the crime card uh, relentlessly and shame, shame, shamelessly, uh, it seems, every election. Uh, and the facts and, the, and their portrayal of the facts are, are, are in entirely different places. That doesn't mean that crime is not an issue. It doesn't mean that we're not focused on it. Um, but I will just say in New Jersey this year, violent crimes, shooting, homicides are all down meaningfully between something like 15 and 30 percent. We invest deeply, uh, not just here, but as a party in in the relations between law enforcement and the communities they serve. We invest in law enforcement. So they're really good at playing the card. Uh, It reminds me, frankly, it it goes back to Nixon's Southern strategy. It's got racial elements to it. Let's just call that for what it is. Uh, It's got racial elements. Okay, maybe everybody's worried about crime because under your tutelage, your state has gotten worse on crime. Um, my favorite thing is to play statistical tricks with baselines. Like, you know, the crime rate went down from last year. Oh, you mean after it dramatically spiked in 2020 and 2021, it went down in 2022? I'm shocked. That means you're doing an amazing job. It's like when Joe Biden says, you know, the inflation, the inflation rate is actually, is actually down. Oh, you mean from the historic highs that it was at last month? It's down slightly? Golf clap for you, sir. Same thing with regard to gas prices. He'll be like, ah, oh, gas prices, gas prices are down 30%. You know, and say, well, uh, not from when you're a president. They might be down from the summer when they are at the highest prices they have ever been in the history of humanity. 
but they are up rather largely from when you took office. But this is the game, play, play games with the baseline. So it's not just the New Jersey, the, the New York governor who's in serious trouble right here. It's also John Fetterman over in Pennsylvania. This race quickly turned into a referendum on whether you think John Fetterman is capable of actually performing the job due to the fact that he had a debilitating stroke he's not fully recovered from. So John Fetterman is out there trying to blame Trump's tax cuts for inflation, which is hilarious on its face because the Trump tax cuts were passed in, I believe, 2017. Just as a matter of policy, this is incredibly dumb. But the bigger problem, of course, is that John Fetterman is not capable of actually explaining his positions, not just philosophically, but I mean physically. So here is John Fetterman, the candidate for Pennsylvania Senate, who has now dropped behind Dr. Oz in the polls. What do you think the biggest cause of inflation is? And should the Biden administration be doing more? No, I, I just do. I, I think the, uh, that simply is also, Leah, this talk about the trillions in, in massive tax uh, tax uh, cuts to the corporate uh, tax uh, structure as well. True. You know, trillions of dollars that have added to the deficit. And, and now they still want to support those as well. True. I like Don Lemon sitting there pretending he understands what in the hell John Fetterman is saying right there. No one knows what John Fetterman is saying because that wasn't incomprehensible English. So, yes, that is a problem, too. Meanwhile, you have other Democrats like North Carolina Senate Democrat candidate Sherry Beasley, who refuses to acknowledge any limits on late term abortion at all, running in a very red to purple state, North Carolina. And Democrats are apparently fighting mad that the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, Senatorial Campaign Committee aren't spending more money on Sherry Beasley. And they are suggesting it's because she's black. No, it's because she's a bad candidate and she's about to lose. Now, here is Sherry Beasley being as radical as she wants to be. At what point in a pregnancy do you view that abortion should be illegal, if at all? I think, I think the foundational question really has to be, uh, who makes the decision? Is it a woman and her physician, uh, or is it the government? Roe versus Wade told us that it's a constitutional uh, right for reproductive freedom for women to make this decision without government dis uh, interference. Beasley would not commit to a specific point in a pregnancy where abortion should be illegal, but said the standard of Roe versus Wade should be followed. Okay, so um, she is running in a red state with no abortion limits as her as her actual policy position. Good luck with that. Mandela Barnes over in Wisconsin. You remember a time when Mandela Barnes was actually leading Senator Ron Johnson in the polling? Well, no longer. One of the reasons for that is because Mandela Barnes is a radical. Here was Mandela Barnes over the weekend suggesting that climate change spending is a job creator. If you think this is a leading issue on anybody's radar in Wisconsin, you have another think coming. Mandela Barnes about to have another think coming when the election results come in next Tuesday. Combating climate change is a job creator. Not addressing climate change is going to kill jobs in this country, whether it's tourism industry, whether it is, um, I mean, whatever the case is. Yeah, good luck with that. that again, all of this a giant fail by Democrats. Charlie Crist running for governor of Florida, who's about to just get walloped. I mean, the polls have him down about 10 points to Ron DeSantis. It could be bigger than that because I don't know a single human in Florida who is enthusiastic to vote for Charlie Crist. There may be some people who don't like Ron DeSantis. There's not one single human being who has ever been enthusiastic to vote for Charlie Crist. Char Charlie Crist is about as interesting as dishwater. He, he just... But he also happens to be open to new mask mandates. Good luck to you in Florida, my friend. As Florida's governor, would you be open to mandating or regulating masks? I would be open to doing what scientists advise. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, so I'm going to the airport right after this, going to Orlando, and I'm going to wear a mask on the plane. You don't have to anymore, but I'm going to. 
because Florida is experiencing an uptick that yeah. began this week. And it's not even the Omicron B2, it's a new variant. Uh, this guy? This? By the way, if you wear a mask on a plane in the first place, that's idiotic. They have the best HEPA filters on planet Earth on those planes. Second of all, are people dying from the new variant? Okay. This, is, this is what Democrats are running on. The answer is a hodgepodge of nonsense. We're running on Republicans are racist for mentioning crime. We are running on unrestricted abortion. We are running on the idea that Trump's tax cuts in 2017 caused inflation in 2021. This is what we're running on. We're also running, of course, on Donald Trump. Joe Biden came and uh, rallied for Charlie Crist, which, again, that rivals that Hochul Kamala Harris rally as maybe the worst rally ever. And uh, apparently he said that Ron DeSantis was Donald Trump incarnate, which no. I mean, the answer there would be no. And everybody knows the answer is no, which is why, first of all, Donald Trump won the state of Florida twice. So <laughs> that's not going to be a winning campaign in Florida anyway. But also, Ron DeSantis is not Donald Trump. So they got nothing. They got nothing in the tank. And this is why the precriminations have begun. We'll get to more on this in just one moment. First, as an Orthodox Jew, Israel obviously is a big priority for me, as it is to a lot of Christians who stand with Israel. This is one reason why I partner with the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews. The fellowship was founded 40 years ago by a Jewish rabbi in Chicago to build bridges between Christians and Jews by serving the needs of impoverished elderly Jews, many of whom are Holocaust survivors. Today, the organization is the largest humanitarian organization helping the poor, not only in Israel, but throughout the former Soviet Union and right now, especially in Ukraine. The fellowship is doing incredible work inside Ukraine right now to provide food for elderly Jews, many of whom have nowhere else to turn as the war intensifies and winter closes in. During the recent attack on Kiev, bombs landed about 600 feet from a vulnerable Jewish community that the fellowship serves. For just 25 bucks, you can rush a food box packed with highly nutritious food to Jewish people in need. Right now, thanks to the special partnership, every $25 donation you give will be matched. So you're providing not one, but two food boxes that will save Jewish lives in Ukraine. To give, head on over to benforthefellowship.org. Please donate today. They urgently need your help. Go to benforthefellowship.org to get started and help them out. Benforthefellowship.org to help out the needy. Benforthefellowship.org. Also, the mainstream media wishes us to glorify obesity and unhealthy lifestyles as sort of good for body image, but overweight is not, in fact, healthy. It's a very radical and very dangerous misperception of reality. That said, living a healthy lifestyle isn't the easiest thing in the world. It's hard to get up and go for a run every morning, and it's hard to make sure you're getting the proper nourishment, especially when you're running from work to school to practice to whatever else you need to do. That a balance of nature is an easy first step toward building a healthier routine. Balance of nature fruits and veggies are the best way to make sure you're getting essential nutritional ingredients every single day. Their products are 100% whole food. Balance of nature uses a cold vacuum process that preserves the natural phytonutrients in whole fruits and vegetables and encapsulates them for easy consumption. Balance of nature sends a bunch of their products down to the studio for my team to try. Everybody loves them. Everybody is looking a lot slimmer and more svelte as well. I was really excited to find out the product is indeed certified kosher. When you're disciplined enough to take care of your health, you reap all kinds of benefits. More energy, less fatigue, better focus. Consuming the right balance of fruits and veggies every day, that's an important first step. Go to balanceofnature.com. Use promo code Shapiro for 35% off your first order as a preferred customer. That's balanceofnature.com. Promo code Shapiro for 35% off your first preferred order today. According to a brand new CNN poll, an enthusiastic Republican base and persistent concerns about the state of the economy placed the GOP in a strong position with about a week to go in the race for control of the House of Representatives. A new survey out Wednesday shows Democratic enthusiasm about voting is significantly lower than it was in 2018 when the Democratic Party took control of the House. Republican voters in the new poll expressed greater engagement with this year's midterm election than Democrats across multiple questions gauging likelihood of vote. Overall, 27% of registered voters say they are extremely enthusiastic about voting this year. That's down from 37% just ahead of the 2018 
2018 midterms. Four years ago, 44% of Democratic registered voters said they were extremely enthusiastic about voting. 24% now say the same. So it dropped by almost half. Among Republicans, the number dipped from 43% to 38%. The Republican enthusiasm gap right now is basically the same as it was in October 2010 when Republicans picked up a bevy of seats, like 60 seats. So Republicans are about to just trash the Democrats. In the polling, Republicans top Democrats on the generic ballot question, 51 to 47. That is outside the poll's margin of sampling error. Among registered voters, it's 47-46 in favor of the Republicans, but the likely voter poll is the one that actually matters. On the issues, half of likely voters say that the key issues are going to be the economy and inflation, which means Democrats are about to get absolutely destroyed. Abortion is the second ranking issue, and it lands as a concern for 15%. So 51% economy, 15% abortion. Good luck to you, Democrats. You're in serious trouble. So as I say, the precriminations have begun. According to the New York Times, top Democratic officials, lawmakers, and strategists are openly second-guessing their party's campaign pitch and tactics, reflecting a growing sense Democrats have failed to coalesce around one effective message with enough time to save off major losses in the House and possibly decisive defeats in the tightly contested Senate. By the way, the Senate races have gotten so tight that it now looks like New Hampshire may shift into the Republican column. There is a serious possibility that Republicans walk away from the midterms with 54 seats in the Senate. That's how bad things are getting for the Democrats. That would amount to Republicans winning Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire. According to the New York Times, the criticisms by Democrats in the final days of the midterm elections signal mounting anxiety as Republicans hammer away with attacks over the economy and public safety. For weeks, Democrats have offered a scattershot case of their own, accusing their opponents of wanting to gut abortion rights, shred the social safety net, shake the foundations of American democracy. But as the country struggles with high gas prices, record inflation, and economic uncertainty, some Democrats now acknowledge their kitchen sink approach may be lacking. Oh, you think? Oh, you think? The truth is, Democrats have done a poor job of communicating our approach to the economy, says Representative Alyssa Slotkin, a Democrat from Michigan who's in one of this year's most competitive races. I have no idea if I'm going to win my election. It's going to be a nail-biter. If you can't speak directly to people's pocketbook and talk about our vision for the economy, you're just having half a conversation. Senator Bernie Sanders is worried. Former President Barack Obama is worried. He urged Democrats not to be a buzzkill by making people feel as if they were walking on eggshells when it came to issues like race and gender. Several prominent Democrats have worried that their party has not fully acknowledged the pain of rising prices. It is a mess. And that mess speaks to the vacuum that is at the top of the Democratic Party in the form of Joe Biden. Meanwhile, Joe Biden apparently, according to the Washington Post, is quietly but clearly preparing a potential re-election bid. And here is what the fallout actually is going to be for Joe Biden if the midterms do not go the way Democrats want them to go. Joe Biden is going to find himself tied to the train track like Nell in a Dudley Do-Right cartoon. The Democrats are going to snidely whiplash style, toss a rope around that guy, throw him in front of a train and wait for the train to come down, barreling down those tracks. That's what's going to happen to Joe Biden. Because the only reason he was up in the first place is we need somebody to be Trump. The only person here we think can be Trump is this person who is not fully alive. And then Joe Biden has presided and will preside over a devastating loss in the midterms, which basically castrates him for the rest of his presidency in terms of policy. And he's going to run for re-election? What, on the basis of his wild charisma and magnetic popularity? There aren't enough 14-year-old girls for whose hair he can sniff to get him reelected in 2024. And Democrats are beginning to realize that. The Washington Post is already seeding the field here by reporting that Biden is prepping a re-election bid. Quote, President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden have been meeting since September with senior advisors at the White House residence to prepare a potential 2024 re-election campaign, according to multiple people familiar with the planning. The meetings of what advisors describe as a very small group come as the DNC has been making plans to respond on Biden's behalf to former President Donald Trump or other potential presidential contenders who could announce campaigns in the coming months. 
The National Party is also drafting plans to re-engage with grassroots supporters from 2020 who aren't involved in the Democratic midterm effort. Biden would turn 86 before the end of a second term. 86 years old. And he is not with us now. Wait another six years and see if that dude is even viable mentally. He has not yet made a final decision on another presidential campaign, his advisors say, but he has indicated publicly and privately he intends to run, barring an unforeseen event. Top White House advisors Anita Dunn, Mike Donnell, and General Malley Dillon, who played senior roles in Biden's 2020 campaign, have been involved in the planning discussions with Biden, as has Chief of Staff Ron Klain. While Biden's advisors have been focused on the midterms, Dunn and O'Malley and O'Dillon Dunn and O'Malley Dillon have spoken with veterans of the past two Democratic presidential re-election campaigns, including Barack Obama's campaign managers, David Plouf and Jim Messina, as well as a couple of vets of the Bill Clinton administration, Bruce Reed and Steve Reschetti, who now work in the White House. Okay, so the reason the Washington Post is running this piece a week before the midterms is so that everybody will step in and say no. Right? That is why they are running that piece. And they're correct. Joe Biden is not capable of running for re-election. Yesterday, he did a rally in Florida, and it was a mess. I mean, th this president is no longer with us. He, he implied during, he actually said during the rally that he spoke to the man who invented insulin. The man who invented insulin died the year before Joe Biden was born. I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> it's Joe Biden. How many of you know somebody with diabetes needs insulin? Well, guess what? And we, when we, when, when we, when Debbie and I passed this law, it included everybody, not just seniors. And so what happened was we said, okay, you know how much it costs to make that insulin drug for diabetes? Cost. It was invented by a man who did not patent it because he wanted it available for everyone. I spoke to him, okay? And guess what? It cost 10 bucks to make. Um, what? Okay, so uh, that, that was just one of Joe Biden's myriad gaffes yesterday. He also suggested that Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who is a member of the House, is actually a member of the United States Senate. He had to be corrected on this. And so she was one of my biggest, biggest supporters in helping me not only pass, but draft and move some of the legislation we're going to talk about today, a couple pieces of it. And uh, I don't have a greater friend in the United States Senate and I don't have a greater friend when I was vice president, nor as president. So, Debbie, thank you, kiddo. I don't know where you're sitting, but oh, there you are, Debbie. Thank you. Well, at least Debbie Wasserman Schultz is an alive person. He has literally called out people in the audience who are, who are not alive before, as well as he has called on people in the audience to stand up who are in a wheelchair. So uh, at least he, he's actually labeling a person who is alive and and. You know, that's that's good, I guess, an improvement. Uh, Joe Biden also continued to say that Bo Biden died in Iraq. His son did not die in Iraq. His son served in Iraq, and then his son died of brain cancer. It was very tragic. He did not die in Iraq. This is like the 17th time that Joe Biden has implied that his son died because of his service in Iraq. He has linked that to everything from burn pits to PTSD. It's, uh, he's not there. I, I don't know what to tell you guys. I'm sorry that you nominated a person who is not fully functional. I'm sorry, but that's your fault. You know, we're dealing with it for a whole second. Inflation is a worldwide problem right now because of a war in Iraq and the impact on oil and what Russia's doing. I mean, excuse me, the war in, in Ukraine. And uh, think of Iraq because that's where my son died. Uh, okay, so that is like seven gaps in one right there. He's talking about the war in Ukraine, but he mentions Iraq. And then he says he's thinking of Iraq because that's where his son died, except his son didn't die there. Great. You guys did amazing job, like amazing job in picking this particular person. George Will, right, who is very anti-Trump. 
he has a piece out today, and this is like the first of the precrimination pieces. For the good of the country, Biden and Harris should bow out of the 2024 election. I love that he just adds Harris on there. It's like Joe Biden should bow out. Also, while we're at it, his VP, she's terrible. She should also go. Like She's sitting there being sideswiped by George Will right there. So what did I do? Like Joe, Joe Biden is, I get it, not all there, but I'm just like, I'm all here. Yes, but you're terrible at this and no one likes you. So here's what George Will writes. During this autumn's avalanche of political news, an enormous boulder bounced by barely noticed to demonstrate why Joe Biden should not seek another term. Democrats should promptly pace that fact and this one. An Everest of evidence shows Vice President Harris is starkly unqualified to be considered as his successor. Oh, well, I think there's only one proper Democratic response to this. Racism. That is the only reason why people would overlook the vastly qualified, intensely magnetic Kamala Harris who loves Venn diagrams and also yellow school buses. The Boulder, meeting recently with some progressive activists, writes George Will, Biden said his $426 billion student loan forgiveness was accomplished by a law he had just signed. I got it passed by a vote or two. No, he did not. Biden was not merely again embellishing his achievements. This is not a display of a verbal fender bender. There is no less than dismaying explanation for his complete confusion. What vote? Who voted? After repeated unilateral extensions of the moratorium on loan repayments until election season, Biden unilaterally implemented the windfall for millions of voters. Congress was not involved in this cataract of money from the Treasury in violation of the Constitution's Appropriations Clause. It is frightening Biden does not know or remember what he recently did regarding an immensely important policy. He must be presumed susceptible to future episodes of similar bewilderment. He should leave the public stage on January 20th, 2025. So should his vice president. Thomas Marshall, Woodrow Wilson's vice president, joked, once there were two brothers, one ran away to sea, the other was elected vice president of the United States, and nothing was heard of either of them again. <laughs> Kamala Harris has been heard from sufficiently. Transcripts of her verbal meanderings cannot convey their eerie strangeness. <laughs> Videos of them should be watched. Meanwhile, here are her Proustian thoughts about broadband in Louisiana. The governor and I, we were all doing a tour of the library here and talking about the significance of the passage of time, right? The significance of the passage of time. So when you think about it, there's great significance to the passage of time in terms of what we need to do to lay these wires, what we need to do to create these jobs. And there is such great significance to the passage of time when we think about a day in the life of our children. What most excited her about the Inflation Reduction Act? Quote, I have a particular fondness, I must tell you, for electric school buses. I love electric school buses. I really do. I've been on these electric school buses. 25 million children in our country every day go to school on those diesel-fueled school buses. And hundreds, thousands of school bus drivers are driving those buses, which are then these people, these children, these adults are inhaling what is toxic air. <laughs> he just keeps quoting her. It's like paragraph after paragraph of Kamala Harris's nonsensical thoughts. Enough, says George Will. She sounds, as a critic has said, like someone giving a book report on a book she has not read. Her style betrays a self-satisfied exaggeration of her aptitudes, lacking natural talent. She needs to prepare, but evidently does not. Complacency and arrogance make a ruinous compound. Regarding Biden and Harris, the National Democratic Party faces two tests of stewardship. Its imprimatur cannot again be bestowed on either of them. Biden is not just past his prime. Even adequacy is in his past. And this is Harris's prime. Uh, uh, yeah, man. So uh, things are going to go real poor for the Democrats going forward after the midterm elections. And we can look forward to all of that, I think, with, with bated breath, because things are going to get pretty amusing and funny. We'll get to more in just one second. First, it's hard to believe we are headed into the midterms already, but we're excited about it. And we are doing it with momentum on our side, thanks to our launch of Daily Wire Plus and films like Matt Walsh's What is a Woman? The Best 
and most important documentary of the last 10 years in the United States, utterly changing the conversation on radical gender ideology. The film has over 5,000 audience ratings on Rotten Tomatoes, even a few reviews from critics who are brave enough to touch it. Thank you all for making the film such a massive, massive success. Help us keep the momentum up by watching and sharing the film. Go to dailywire.com slash Ben, become a member, and watch today. Okay, so meanwhile, heading into the midterm elections, the economy looks like it is slowing even further. According to the New York Times, corporate America is still raising those prices. The Federal Reserve is trying to bring down inflation. In order to do that, they're raising the interest rates again. But corporations are still raising the prices because, again, they sort of have to to keep up with the prices of the products that they are buying to pass on to the consumers. According to the New York Times, Federal Reserve officials are battling the fastest inflation in four decades. As they do, they are parsing a wide variety of data sources to see what might happen next. If they check in on how executives are describing their company's latest financial results, they might have reasons to worry. It's not because corporate chiefs are overly gloomy about their prospects. Quite the opposite. Many executives across a range of industries over the last few weeks have said they expect to see sustained demand. In many cases, they plan to continue raising prices in the months ahead. That's good for investors, but not necessarily welcome news for the Fed, which has been trying hard to slow consumer spending. The central bank has already raised rates five times this year, is expected to do so again on Wednesday as part of its campaign to cool off the economy. Jane Frazier, chief executive of Citigroup, said, quote, while we are seeing signs of economic slowing, consumers and corporates remain healthy. So it's all a question of what it takes to truly tame persistently high core inflation. I'll tell you what the Washington Post thinks is necessary. They have an editorial today saying the Fed might have to trigger a recession to beat inflation. Quote, a recession would be unwelcome, but high inflation is a greater threat and it is already here. This is the Washington Post, a very left-wing newspaper that is now pushing an actual recession in order to defeat inflation created by the vast spending by the Federal Reserve as well as by the federal government under the last year of Donald Trump because of the pandemic and then the completely unnecessary spending of 2021-2022 under Joe Biden. High inflation is a greater threat. It's already here, says the Washington Post. Core inflation clocked in at a 6.6% annual rate in September. Real wages are declining because price increases are swamping gains in the size of paychecks. Rising prices for food, housing, cars, clothes, other basic goods hit everyone. They punish low-income people the hardest in poll after poll. Voters say inflation is one of their top concerns. There will be pain. One effect of rate hikes is to raise consumer borrowing costs for car loans, credit cards, mortgages. 30-year fixed mortgage rates hit 7% last week and promised to rise even higher. Moreover, it's hard for the Fed to know exactly when to stop slamming on the brakes because it takes time for the effective interest rate increases to be felt across the economy. There's not going to be a soft landing here, folks. We are going to see a real down economy for the next couple of years in all likelihood. And so with all of this bad news, this means that Democrats are, of course, doubling down on the idea that Republicans are evil and violent. And this is not going to work. This is not a pitch that is going to work. Whoopi Goldberg trying to rally the troops by suggesting that Fox News is to blame in the wake of a crazy person hitting Paul Pelosi in the head with a hammer. Here is Whoopi Goldberg from The View, the repository of all intelligence on planet Earth. But, I mean, our thoughts and prayers are with yeah, Apple. Hey, Fox well, Some of this is on your hands. Yeah. Yeah. Some of this is on your hands. You know, you, you like to call people out. Well, I'm calling you all out. Mm -hmm. Stop with the, 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 that side is not good. Because this is what it, this is what it puts out there. Oh, that, really? Whoopi is the only, wow, she is, she is. The most civil, wonderful person is Whoopi Goldberg, except for her treatment of Meghan McCain for years while she was on The View. Whoopi Goldberg is just a delightful human. She's never said anything that is remotely inflammatory about the other side. She's a moderate of the highest order. Uh, I love the stupid game that we play when a person who expresses crazy right-wing conspiracy theories goes and hits Paul Pelosi in the head with a hammer, but also is a career nudist drug addict and nut. That obviously is the result of ads that were run by the Republican Party in 2006 about Nancy Pelosi. If a Bernie Sanders fan goes and shoots almost to death a member of Congress, 
then obviously that has nothing to do with Bernie Sanders. That's a crazy person. This is the way this pattern runs. And the media are just going to stick with this. So MSNBC, they, they did an entire panel. What's wrong with the GOP? It's, oh, the GOP and their rhetoric. Again, guys, you're MSNBC. If we are talking about polarization and rhetoric, you guys put Al Sharpton and Joy Reid on the air every day. I don't think you have many legs to stand on in terms of the polarization of American rhetoric. And Charlie, I just want to also shout out, you know, your piece, What the Hell is Wrong with These People, uh, your morning shot on thebulwark.com. And I haven't even raised the subject of some of these political ads where people are pulling out shotguns. You know, candidates, the, the Republican head of the Republican campaign, Congressional Campaign Committee. Um, you mean they cut an ad with a gun in it? Well, probably what happened is that guy was totally fine and normal until he watched the ad with a gun in it, in which the person did not actually shoot Nancy Pelosi. And, uh, and probably then he was like, I'm going to go attack Paul Pelosi with a hammer. That's, I love that we are just supposed to connect the dot all by ourselves. The dot from political ad, broad spectrum political ad about Nancy Pelosi to somebody goes to her house and hits her husband in the head with a hammer. By the way, I have a question just on logistics. Where the hell is the Capitol Police? What exactly would you say they do for a living? The Capitol Police apparently had cameras in the place. They just weren't monitoring any of the cameras in the place. You would imagine that if the Capitol Police were going to defend anyone, because it's their job apparently to defend the Speaker of the House, that they would be defending the House. So either it's local PD's inability to crack down on crime thanks to local regulations, or the Capitol Police continue their apparently unabated pattern of being unable to protect Congress people. I'm going to blame the leadership of the Capitol Police for that one. The Washington Post had an entire piece about how Capitol Police theoretically could have stopped this thing. Heavy emphasis on theoretically. You know, Representative Lois Zofgren of California, she's doing the same thing. Millions were spent to demonize Nancy Pelosi. Okay, can I just point out once again, if you are a famous political figure in the United States, lots of bad stuff gets said about you. Lots of bad stuff. I am familiar with this particular phenomenon. It is not as though I have not been the target of an inordinate amount of hatred on the internet. People saying very nasty things about me, very nasty things about my family. And guess what? That's part of the ballgame. Get used to it. And it does not mean that people saying a nasty thing about me, saying whatever they want about me, as long as they're not calling for violence, it does not mean they're responsible for violence. But again, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Here's Representative Zoe Lofgren doing this routine. There was never a, a campaign of ads to put, uh, you know, Mr. Scalise's picture in, in, a, in a target uh, for target practice and political ads. Millions of dollars have been spent to demonize Nancy Pelosi and others. And that is the part of the problem. That, that, that's the problem. It must be the political ads. And this is really cynical stuff. It's not going to work for the Democrats. They're trying to pull out all the stops. So as we said at the beginning, they're now trying various, various lines. None of them are likely to be successful. They tried chatting about Donald Trump. They've tried chatting about abortion. They're trying to say that Republicans are racist for mentioning crime. They're trying to suggest evil corporate greed is responsible for increase in prices. And now their final last gasp attempt is to pin their entire election hopes on people believing that a nut job who was a nudist went into Nancy Pelosi's house looking to harm her because he saw a random ad from Kevin McCarthy in 2009 or something. If that is your closing electoral pitch, guys, you're about to see a red wave that makes day after tomorrow look like nothing. It's going to be a brutal week for the Democrats beginning on Tuesday. Okay, so big election in Israel yesterday. The entire left had basically written off Benjamin Netanyahu. I remember when he was cast out of power by a bizarre coalition between Naftali Bennett, who is a religious Zionist, and between Yair Lapid, who is sort of a center-left figure in Israel, a former television anchor. That coalition included 
uh, a weird agglomeration of parties ranging from the very heavily Russian Jewish Home Party to Ra'am, which is an actual Arab party that sat in the coalition, first Arab party to ever sit in an Israeli governing coalition. And I said at the time that Bibi would be back. The entire left-wing media in the United States celebrated because they hate Bibi because Bibi didn't like Barack Obama and he didn't like Barack Obama because Barack Obama hated Israel with a passion that could only be matched by the fiery fury of a thousand sons. So Bibi and Obama were at odds the entirety of Obama's presidency because Obama wanted to reorient the United States away from its alliance with Israel entirely. So the media despised Netanyahu and they decided that they were going to cast their vote as much as they could, the international media against Netanyahu. So Netanyahu was basically thrust out of power. And at the time they're like, ah, this will be the end of Bibi. This will be the end of Benjamin Netanyahu. And I said at the time, that is wrong. There is no way this coalition can hold. Bibi is still in control of the largest faction in the Knesset, the Likud party, and he will be back. Well, he came back with a vengeance in yesterday's elections. The votes are still being tallied in Israel, but the latest vote count has a massive win for Benjamin Netanyahu. The current coalition for Benjamin Netanyahu has Bibi's party, Likud, at 32 mandates, the Religious Zionist Party, which is a very right-wing party led by two extremely right-wing figures, Bezalel Smotrich and Itmar Ben-Gavir, at 14 seats. Shas at 11 seats. Shas is a Sephardic religious party. UTJ, which is sort of the Ashkenazic religious party, United Torah Judaism, at eight seats. Those are the parties who are likely to sit with Benjamin Netanyahu. That would put him at 65 seats in the Knesset. That is a durable coalition. You require a majority of 61 in the Knesset, the parliament of 120 in order to govern in Israel. The last coalition that was formed had 61 seats and then it had 60 and it sort of fell apart because it just didn't have a broad enough coalition and the coalition was completely unwieldy. It only existed in opposition to Benjamin Netanyahu. This time, the Israeli public, they decided, you know what? Many of us may not be huge fans of Netanyahu, but you know what we like even less? This coalition that is completely unworkable, that seems to be making wild concessions to the Ra'am party, the Arab party, to try to keep that in the coalition. A coalition that seems almost entirely oriented against Benjamin Netanyahu personally, and also doesn't seem to like the religious in the country enough to actually protect their prerogatives, for example. So Israeli politics is very weird because there are basically two wings of Israeli politics that support heavy welfare spending. One is the religious wing, that would be Shas and, and UTJ, and the other is the Arab wing, which would be Ra'am and Hadash Tal. Those parties support heavy social spending for welfare. The religious wing, because the Haredim don't work as much as the normal Israelis do, they also don't serve in the army. The Arabs don't serve in the army, and also they have very high levels of unemployment, so they're also in favor of wild social spending. It's one of the problems with Israel, very difficult for them to restructure their economy in capitalistic ways because there are so many people who require the welfare payments. With that said, this new coalition is likely to be significantly more free market than the old coalition. It's also likely to be significantly more right-wing in how it prosecutes terror. So the Religious Zionist Party, which is the third biggest party in Knesset now, and that party has pledged to basically free the hands of the Israel Defense Forces. So if there are terrorists who are throwing, for example, Molotov cocktails at Israeli soldiers, the rules heretofore have been that Israel is supposed to shoot them with rubber bullets or supposed to mitigate its use of force. The Religious Zionist Party is saying, no, if you throw a Molotov cocktail at somebody and you get shot, that, that would be a you problem. The Religious Zionist Party is also attempting to re-enshrine sort of traditional morality in terms of, for example, marriage. There's been a big push on the left in Israel for same-sex adoption. The Religious Zionist Party is not in favor of that. Meanwhile, the Likud Party is promising the building of more settlements, maybe the annexation of some of the Jewish areas of Judea and Samaria, the West Bank. 
So what exactly happened? There are a bunch of stories that are really fascinating about this particular election. One is the simple fact that hatred for a political figure, this is a good lesson for America, it's a good lesson for the Democrats. Hatred of one political figure is not enough to, for long, stave off your own incompetence. Okay, what happened with this coalition is it was not workable. I honestly feel bad for both Naftali Bennett and for Yair Lapid, who were leading that coalition, because the coalition was doomed to failure. There was no way it was going to last. The fact it lasted as long as it did is a testament, I suppose, to their leadership capacity. With that said, the falling apart of that coalition was written on the wall the moment that coalition was formed. It was formed simply out of hatred for Benjamin Netanyahu, and it was never going to hold. And it turns out the Israeli public doesn't like going to elections every five minutes and just saying over and over again, we don't like Bibi Netanyahu, so instead we'll put in place this coalition that seems to be making absurd concessions to not only the Palestinian Authority in Judea and Samaria in the midst of a terror war, but also to welfareism and illegal building in the Arab sector, making outsized moves toward the hard left in Israel. Yair Lapid spent the weeks leading up to the election going to the UN and trying to reinvigorate the two-state solution, which right now is a dead letter considering that the Palestinian Authority is a wild anti-Israel force that cannot be allowed to have a state. So the two-state solution has been effectively dead since Oslo, um, but uh, he was trying to blow some air into that. He was also trying to say that he was going to redo the nation-state law, which suggests that Israel is the nation-state of the Jewish people, a very unpopular position in Israel. He was appealing to his left, and it did not work. Not only did it not work, the hard left in Israel does not exist, and that's the true story of what's happened in Israel. In Israel, there are two hardcore left parties. Okay, all the other parties, not counting the Arab parties, are either center or center-right. You might call Yeshatid, which is Yair Lapid's party, a center-left party, but the truth is it's kind of center party. The two parties that represent the hard left in Israel are the Labor Party and the Merits Party. The Labor Party, for the first three decades of Israel's existence, in unbroken fashion, held power. The Labor Party, every prime minister from 1948 all the way up until Menachem Begin was elected in 1977-1978, up until that point, every single prime minister had been of the Labor Party. Even after that, Basically, all of Israeli politics revolved around the conflict between the Likud party, which is a center-right party in Israel, and the Labor Party, which is a hard-left party in Israel. The last Labor prime minister, I believe, was Ehud Barak. uh, And it's been a while since there was a full-on Labor prime minister. So Labor has now declined to the point where it represents four seats in Knesset. Four. That was the biggest party in Israeli history for the first three decades of its existence. Does not exist. It is four mandates right now, likely... Impossible that it even drops below that and doesn't end up in Knesset at all. Meretz is the even further left party than Labor. Zero seats, zero. They did not make the cutoff. So what that means is that the hard left doesn't exist in Israel. Why doesn't the hard left exist in Israel? Two reasons. One, Israel has existential threats on all of its borders. The idea that Israel is supposed to make concessions to, to bad people who wish to murder people, that's gone completely away. It does not exist anymore. And any American attempts to force that are going to fail. Because the Israeli public is not willing to sacrifice thousands of more lives on the altar of a false peace that does not exist. So labor and merits are getting clocked over that. The second thing is that there actually is a fairly large free market consensus in Israel. The notion of re-socialization or re-nationalization of industry. The notion that the unions need to be made stronger in Israel, which is what labor really pushes. That has fallen by the wayside because there are strikes every five minutes in Israel. Regulations are too tight and everyone knows it. Center left, center, center right, and right. Everybody knows that. So what's happening in Israel, I think, is a precursor to what's happening around the globe. One of the reasons that you are seeing a rise in center-right and right-wing politics around the globe is because as the world becomes a more dangerous place, all of the sort of bizarre, dreamlike, utopian notions of left liberalism are falling apart. 
The notion that free immigration is going to lead to a more peaceful world. The notion that borders are really just non-existent and don't matter. The belief system that suggests that multiculturalism is a solution to social cohesion. All of that has fallen by the wayside, and that's why you're seeing the rise of the right in France, the rise of the right in Germany, the rise of the right in Hungary, in Poland, the rise of the right in Latin America. By the way, it's not going away. In another foreign policy news, Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro pledged to respect the Constitution after he lost the election. He didn't acknowledge the results, but he did say that he would leave office when he was supposed to leave office. The reason that Bolsonaro is doing that is because he will be back. So again, the the left-wing media in the United States and internationally likes to declare political figures of the right dead the minute that they are out of office. That is not what's going to happen in Brazil. What's going to happen in Brazil is the Bolsonaro's party, which represents the largest faction in the Brazilian legislature. That party is going to be back. Lula is not going to govern well. All of his presuppositions about how he's going to be able to fix everything in there through hard left governance, that is not going to work. And Bolsonaro will be back. The same thing is likely to happen in a lot of other Latin American countries. Whoever was in power during COVID is getting blamed and feeling the blowback right now, which means that if there are right-wing parties that were in power in Colombia or in Chile, that they felt the brunt. But left-wing governance is likely to fail. And when it fails, the right-wing is there to pick up the pieces. That's what's happening in the United States as well. This is a transnational phenomenon. People right now in Britain, they're saying the Labor Party is in an upsurge. Okay, let's say the Labor Party wins. How long do you think they will be in power before people quickly see how unfeasible and unworkable Labor Party policy is? The failures of the right lead to the rise of the left, but the inevitable failures of the left also lead to the rise of the right. The big failures of the right, typically speaking in the United States and elsewhere, have been failures of party cohesion, failures to implement a a conservative vision in consistent fashion without sort of fragmentary foolishness. That's what's happening in Great Britain. The conservative party has no actual governing agenda, and so they're falling apart. The problem is that the alternative to the conservative party in Britain, the Labour Party in Britain, is a complete disaster area. And if they actually gain power, it will be made obvious that the problem there is not group cohesion. The problem is their policies suck. And that's what you're seeing in the Democratic Party in the United States right now. The, The factions inside the Republican Party are very real. There are a lot of divisions inside the Republican Party. The Democratic Party is very cohesive. There's not a lot of friction inside the Democratic Party. Whatever friction is there is pretty quiet, is pretty quickly quelled, right? When the progressives write a letter to Joe Biden telling him that they wish to see him draw back on Ukrainian aid, he writes an angry letter back to them. They withdraw the letter. The group cohesion on the left is not the problem. The problem is their policy stinks. And when people see that, they're likely to vote them out. And that's precisely what just happened in Israel. I think in the future, it's likely to happen in Brazil again. Alrighty, guys, the rest of the show is continuing now. The New York Times is fighting mad that Trevor Noah is leaving the air, but that people watch this show. Yeah, that's actually a thing. Plus, Greta Thunberg is very outraged, but not just at the environment. She's also outraged at capitalism. We'll get to that. If you're not a member, click the link in the description and join us.